Welcome to Perspectives, podcast where we discuss cultural and faith perspectives. I'm your host, Bruce. Thank you for joining us. Today, we have a guest, a good friend, and someone that actually is from a country that's on the news a lot at the moment, and that is the country of Russia. David has been a friend for several years. Uh, we met him. Um, actually, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. I want to back up and just introduce David. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you very much. So take us through a little bit of your history. You've been in Russia now uh, for quite a few years, but you're actually from Switzerland. I'd love for our audience to hear a little bit of your story. So take us back to uh, your childhood and life in Switzerland. Yes. So I was born uh, in the most beautiful city of Switzerland, in Luzern. If you ever get a chance, just beautiful to visit. Uh, after the death of my mother, uh, my father, he remarried, and we moved to the northeast of Switzerland, very close to the border of Germany. My childhood was, except course of the death of my mother and a few other unhappy things, uh, quite a normal childhood, I would say. <laughs> um, I come from a family of believers, so I have been associated with the church for all of my life. Uh, since in Switzerland, you have two governmental churches, the Reformed and the Catholic Church. Uh, back in the days, you just automatically belong to one of them. So... This is actually also what brought me then into Russia. I just had always this fascination with uh, uh, everything that, that was from the former Soviet Union. It started with uh, video games when I always played the Russians uh, or <laughs> when I held a presentation in school about the history of Soviet nuclear submarines. Uh, it always just fascinated me. Yeah, one... One day I, I sensed a, uh, a call to go to, to Russia to go study there, study in the Bible school. Back up a little bit. You, How old are you when you sense God working in your life and calling you to this country? About, uh, let's say, what was it, 20, 20 years. Okay, About so you had, you had finished kind of what we would consider high school in the West. Were you, were you also alre- uh, already in college? No, we, I did an apprenticeship, so I finished my apprenticeship, and then I went to the army. Uh, I was a sergeant in the infantry. 20-year-old 20, 20 yeah, so. sergeant. Yeah. <laughs> and is that a requirement in Switzerland to go into service? Uh, basically. You can get out of it quite easily, but I didn't have anything else to do. And um, I thought, you know, why not earn some easy money? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Swiss Army, you, you know, you're not going to get into some, some hot spots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good country to uh, serve. Exactly. I was what you call a born-again Christian since, since I was a child. Yeah, I surrendered my life to God, I remember, in a car uh, when I was seven years old. But, and so my understanding of who God is, what he has done, was quite thorough, I would say. We, but of course, during my time in the army, everything started to fade away a bit. <laughs> so, yeah, there was not a lot of church going on. I was moving away from God, uh, living my life a bit. Mm-hmm. So I took that freedom and I joy- enjoyed it. There was a summer camp uh, that was off the church. And again, I had a lot of money, a lot of free time since I didn't start my new job. It was then in the airport police. And... So I went to this church camp, it was in Spain, and there I got reacquainted with God. And of course, then I started to experiment with with things like listening to God's voice. How can you hear God's voice? I actually started reading through the Bible as fast as possible, just from cover to cover to get a big picture. And yeah, it was it was the, the process of that brought me then to, to Russia, the, this, this call. It was not a single event. It was like a small series of events. So for example, I would, on my way to work into the airport, I would walk into a bookstore and buy a self-learning course. 
uh, German Russian, you know, one of the with CDs and the books back in the days. And I walked out of the store and I was just thinking, what have I done? I've just spent 120 Swiss francs on the language course that I actually did not plan to, to start using at all. Oh. <laughs> um, a series of events that made me actually interested. Yeah, I want to go to Russia. I want to see this place. Uh, but not just as a tourist. I actually want to do something there. I want to experience the culture, experience the people. And I Googled. Then I found a school in the far east of Russia. And I applied. And that's how I ended up in Russia in the year 2010. Okay. For those of you that maybe aren't sure how big Russia is, I was just looking again at a map before we talk with David. And, and uh, 11 time zones. And it's massive. And so you decide, I'm not just going to dip my toe, maybe go visit Moscow or some bordering, you know, eastern uh, city like St. Petersburg. You go all the way over. It's close to, it borders Japan and Asia, essentially. Everybody said the same, that, you know, Moscow and St. Petersburg, they're great cities. They're beautiful, but they're not Russia. Hmm. Russia is different. Moscow is not Russia, <laughs> because it has developed into just a metropole, good public transport, everything's clean, <laughs> you know, no potholes. But I wanted to experience the real Russia. Mm. And I thought, why not go a bit further away? <laughs> As a Swiss, I didn't like the idea of Siberia, uh, cold. <laughs> mm -hmm. so I found this place in the, in the south that's far away from Moscow, mm -hmm. Russia's far east. Yeah, and Russia also, beyond just being geographically huge, is so diverse. 120 ethnic groups and 100 languages. And we think of, like you're saying, like there's some classical cities, Moscow, St. Petersburg, uh, all these other people groups that have been there for centuries and centuries that have unique culture, unique ways of seeing the world and tell us about the first few years was it everything that you were hoping for uh surprise you frustrate you what was that like uh so the first few years i mean yeah i did the bible school and at first i thought i would not go back to to russia i mean i liked it it was very interesting it was eye-opening and um, for me as a swiss it was in a way different, but very much interested me. since in Switzerland, everything's, you know, is in neat little boxes, quality boxes. Yes. But everything's very structured. Everything is planned through. Yes. And Russia is just the exact opposite. And it just, it, it was, there was a scene when I just arrived uh, in St. Petersburg and I just had a transfer there and, and some guys were switching out the sign and literally one guy stood on the roof of the terminal, held the other one on his legs, and this guy was hanging head down and switching out the sign. And in, in Switzerland, you, you get a fine when you were without a helmet on a construction site. So, yeah, I like it. I'm a, I'm a freedom kind of liking guy, but I uh, stayed in, in touch with uh, one of the girls that I've met in the school. Oh, uh, the girls. Here comes the, yeah, girls. Here comes the yeah. hook. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes the hook. And she, unsurprisingly, became my wife. And we actually started to date in Ukraine in 2011, mm -hmm. in the city of Ternopil. And Ukraine for us it has, uh, has ever since a very special place in our hearts. I moved back to Switzerland to pack my things in 2011. So I was there for four months. And then I moved... In September 2011, moved. I went to Russia forever. Yeah, it's different from you know being in a country for a limited amount of time, even if the time span is several months, half a year, uh, than living there, especially because of the immigration services. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's astonishing to me still. You know, Russia is not the place where you would think uh, would have a huge number of immigrants coming to. But they actually do. Central Asians uh, pour in. You have here in Russia's Far East, of course, plenty of Chinese, of Vietnamese, of Koreans, Japanese. And I was 
very surprised about the amount of people, of, you know, immigrants, and also of sort of state the system was in, which of course made everything immigration related just very painful. And this created this for a long time this sense that I grew accustomed to the nation, to the culture. I studied the language. I, after a few years, I spoke Russian fluently, so I, I started to build relationships, just built a life. And I like that part a lot, but then uh, the opposite end you have every year, you need to go to the immigration services. They don't want anybody without money in the nation. They don't want to spend their own money on, on immigrants. So you need to prove that you have a, you have a job or, or at least a certain amount of money. And it, it, it was frustrating because uh, a single stamp, I would use a month of my time several days a week I would be at the office waiting in lines <laughs> trying to get my stamp for the and privilege of living in Russia exactly exactly it sounds insane <laughs> and that's how I felt and but this created this dissonance basically that all the times when I had to go to the immigration office I was thinking why am I doing this right why am I here I could go back to Switzerland live a happy life without phones. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> immigration services. Your family starts to grow. Yes. In 2015, our uh, first daughter, Maya, was born. And she is the most stubborn, the most beautiful girl that you have ever seen. <laughs> At the time, then, there was a campaign happening. People from Belarus traveling by bicycle through Belarus and all of Russia. The idea to popularize adoption. My wife, Masha, she said that I, I want to adopt at some point. And for me as a, as a guy, I never thought about it. Uh, but I wasn't opposed to the idea. I just thought, well, if the time comes, when the time comes, we'll, we'll have a look at it in, in 2015. And we've decided, okay, yeah, we, we want to adopt too. We have a, one child. Uh, let's, let's move forward. Actually, one of our acquaintances was, and she explained that to us that, yeah, Masha can adopt, but me, I'm not allowed. I cannot adopt any Russian child. That was a bit of a blow. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. but we, we still decided, okay, let's go ahead. Um, at least Masha can adopt and we would figure something out. Somehow I, I can adopt child too. And just at the time where, where we finished Masha's documents, the gathering of her documents, uh, we got pregnant the second time with uh, Benjamin. We went on with the process and we knew it was going to be challenging. And in 2016, we adopted Paul. Yeah, he was born premature at a bit over six months. And when they presented him first to us, they said he's blind and he doesn't react to any anything, basically, not to sound, not to movement, not to visual stimulation. Um, I was thinking, oh, no, probably not, because, you know, we have a small child, another one on the way, and, <laughs> mm -hmm. and a, a blind child in Russia, which is not very friendly towards people with disabilities. I just thought, no. Uh, my wife, she remember what they told us in the uh, evening courses that we needed to take in order to be allowed to adopt. And there they said, you know, just look at the child. Don't let anybody tell you anything. Physically look at the child and then decide. And they brought him in. He's seen us and he's mine. Mm. So obviously he can see. <laughs> obviously he has a certain level of interaction. And then we've uh, adopted him. Well, Masha adopted him. How many kids you have now? Now we have four. You So you have two by birth and two adopted. Is that right? Yes. Yes. In the process, we, we found, Masha found his uh, birth, his biological mother, and also another little boy that looked quite similar to Paul. We figured out through neighbors and, and uh, you know, shopkeepers in that village that, yeah, yeah not a very good um, place to grow up so we knew sooner or later this boy is going to end up in the system we had people there who told us right away that okay he's there and if you're still interested we can get him into your family and that's uh, what we did you have a lot of energy flowing through <laughs> not the, anymore 
The not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, among the kids, there's a lot of energy. If you can oh, harness, among, yeah, yeah. if you can harness that energy into something productive. Thank you for sharing that journey. I know that that was a big part of your family's story, history, testimony. Inside the country, there are so many different stories, so many different people. And as much as our media want to label and call everyone by the same color, there are very real people inside Russia that are, uh, I would say, one, opposed to what's taking place, two, uh, oblivious to what's really taking place, three, maybe brainwashed, like we all can be from our different uh, perspectives and places where we get our, our news and we buy the narratives. From your perspective as a, as a foreigner, who is also now, you, you actually are a citizen as well, a dual citizen, you're able to break through the bureaucracy and get your Russian citizenship as well. How did you see this all unfolding and then those around you as well? What were the perspectives early on? So, as you know, and people who listen to your podcast and those who have not been oblivious to the news, there has been a massive true buildup since fall 21. And obviously, people in Russia knew, especially in the western border regions. But it was it was also in the news, um, but more of just, you know, we're doing training exercises. And since... It hasn't been the first time that, you know, troops have been amassed at the Ukrainian border. Um, massive amounts of tanks, planes, helicopters, everything. So nobody here was really worried. There have been some signs that something serious would be coming. For example, Putin publishing his article on the unity of the Russian and Ukrainian people and lands. Most people I know that were a bit interested in politics, they've read it. Uh, I've read it too, and it was a bit alarming. And you're a history buff, so you just finished your degree in history. I don't want to go off too far into history, but as I read it as well, that piece was very important, and I think was mostly yeah. overlooked by the West, because if you knew anything about history, a rewriting, not falsifying, but piecing together a narrative that would suit action that would, was about to come. You saw in Ukraine this um, claiming of the Kievian Rus, the center of the birthplace of, you know, Rus, Russia, this history which is a thousand years old, the origins of the Russian people, which is the Slavic culture, you think of Belarus and Russia and uh, Ukraine, they are all tapping from the same root system with a very different perspective on history and how cultures evolved and all the way through the Mongolian 200 years of oppression, wars, invasions, through the Romanov period into Soviet communism to today, there's a piecing together of very fragmented pieces of history. And what I find interesting, and I didn't mean to get out and go off on this tangent, but we enjoy talking about these things, is that the dominant systems in any power structure always get to write the history. You have this history of violence, of expansionism, of dictatorship, at times flowering seeds of democracy. And if we don't understand our history, we're going to repeat it. And if we do understand the history, we're able to read a piece like Putin put out and say, whoa, okay, that's an interesting take. Talk to us about from that point on, you, you read it, you're a little bit alarmed, and then from there? Well, maybe not just a little bit, because what you need to know is that in Russia, the foundation has, you know, of the narrative of, okay, Ukraine, not just Ukraine, Belarus, um, north of Kazakhstan, Moldova, Georgia, the Caucasus, these are our lands. The concept has been built, not just by Putin, but already through uh, by the Tsars and in the Soviet Union, of course, of the Russian world. So any kind of place was influenced, under-influenced by the Russian language, orthodoxy, or common heritage, as they say. Common heritage, common heritage through expansion and domination. Through anything, through anything. Um, 
I mean, you know, in the Soviet Union, it was quite popular to replace population. Tatars, the power of people from Crimea, they were displaced, rushed. <laughs> and of course, then at some point, you have more Russians in, an, in a land that was Tatar uh, throughout all of history. You know, the common heritage means that we have a common history, mm-hmm. so to say. There's Russian-speaking people there, but you put them there and to strengthen your power base. So it's so it's such a ridiculous argument. And you never hear the counter, well, yes, that was a foolish move that you moved in and put your own people in there. And now you're using that as an excuse to justify your, your occupation or your invasion. Yes. I mean, you know, for an outsider, for a Westerner, a Ukrainian, right, it's, it's uh, foolish, it's even offensive, uh, because you understand the common history. Yeah, you have a common history, but you understand it quite differently. You see, you see it very differently from from the Russian perspective. But nothing unusual because Russia, the Soviet Union, has been a classical empire. We don't see it necessarily as an empire with with colonies because it was just a land empire that was continuous. So not like the British who had their faraway colonies, right? Everybody knows that's an empire by Russia. The Soviet Union was a classical empire. So after the breakup of this empire, after the fall of the Soviet Union, you obviously, the people within this empire had very mixed feeling about that breakup, right? While Ukrainians, even Belarusians, Georgians, they, they were rejoicing at that moment. Uh, you know, you found freedom, independence, finally. For the Russians, it was a catastrophe. question I have for you is, did it ever really become, in any sense, a democracy? Was that was that just the system lying dormant and waiting for the right moment? Um, you know, it's a good question. <laughs> in the late 80s, early 90s especially, there was a huge chance, I would say, to, to become a democracy. But huge mistakes have been made by the people in power by western powers by basically everybody to push russia towards this path of of true democracy because what it developed into in the 90s it was just an oligarchy right and it very much depends how much power you give the parliament the judges the president of how your system will develop and president just had way too much power already in the 90s and of course the private property was just yeah basically on a on on a close circle of people that were acquainted with the people in power back then it was just shared to them just given away which had the effect of the you know one percent of the russian population became insanely rich basically overnight Mm-hmm. But everybody else became insanely poor. The system began to crumble. So infrastructure, because nobody was taking care of infrastructure. At the same time, you, the, the governmental system became only interested in keeping their power. Russia, it just basically skipped the democracy part. Once Putin then comes in, uh, yeah, he kind of stabilizes everything, right? And this is his, his powerful narrative. Narrative has a big core of truth. That, yeah, he stabilized the nation. He he brought it out of poverty. So you know the classical dictator narrative that he took the nation from the ground and made it into a powerful, respected, feared nation state again. That's why most people, most follow him until now. He can do everything. He could declare uh, that to invade the moon, and people would still be voting for the guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hofstede is. Uh... There was, he just passed away a few years ago, a Dutch social psychologist. And you can go Google Hofstede uh, Insights. And what he does and what his business has done is surveyed the different cultures throughout the world and put them into six categories. Like they're comparative categories. The six dimensions, the one of them really stands out as power distance. And it's the degree to which the less powerful members of a society accept and expect that power is distributed unequally. And the Slavic culture ranks at the top of this list. And so compared to America, which would be about a 30 on a scale of zero to a hundred, the Slavic culture is like a 92. Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia the people without the positional places in society that don't have positional authority of some kind, they have essentially fully accepted they cannot change the system. 
and they expect. So there's an anticipation that power will be distributed unequally. You know, we there, we place this value on individual rights, individual freedoms, but that 70-year period of communism really shaped a mental model within the core of the population and that that anticipates and expects you know what if i'm not in that inner circle i cannot change that it doesn't matter if it's a school or a hospital or the government any social structure for example when you go to get your documents at the immigration office russians are saying hey sit down and shut up you're going to be here all day and there's nothing you can do about it and there's an acceptance of that but when we Westerners approach those systems, our independent um, power mental models is like, hey, who's your boss? I need to speak. This is the system's terrible. It needs to be fixed. But I, I share that because I think it's foolish of the West to think that after 70 years of this shaping, and it goes back even further than that, but this idea that those in power are uh, essentially untouchable and that it takes a very, very brave, unique person to stand up and to actually resist and to confront or to protest. Uh, because number one, you are going to face the mob reaction of those around you that for the most part, they support and they just are good with the status quo. And number two, you are going to suffer. You can see these generational divides. You can see a divide that goes through urban and rural populations. And it's not, it, it, it's shown by official Russian statistics. The same that uh, say that 70 to 80% of the Russians support the military operation uh, or war as it's in reality. Yeah, you, you have this divide. The thing is, the old, you know, the older generations are, are say, probably 40 and above, predominantly support Putin, supports uh, the war. People in villages support Putin and the war and the poor. So you can say the more uh, wealthy, urban, young person is, the more immune he is to, uh, to the governmental narrative. Yeah, it has it has to do with what you said that uh, you know seventy years you <laughs> you you were planted into this system of where your individual choice matters nothing, and the difference here between uh, Russia and Ukraine. So, I mean, you know, I have been to Ukraine several times more for many months at the time, and uh, it was very interesting to see the difference between Ukrainian society and the Russian society. And the difference was that um, in Russia, during the 2000s, uh, Putin and his associates, uh, I mean, you know, they were now in power trying to protect the money. They depoliticized society even further. In the late 80s, early 90s, uh, a certain amount of the population that grew up interested in actually building politics and uh, moving towards democracy, free markets and so on. Uh, but uh, the goal was the, to make people as least interested in politics as possible. And so in Russia, you had a, a system developed, which basically meant that, okay, we provide you material uh, wealth, basically, um, not huge amounts, but uh, out of poverty. You will not be in poverty. You will have an apartment, uh, enough food, you can buy a new TV, a new car, and go to holiday. But in exchange, we want you to stay out of what we do. And because of the growing uh, oil uh, exports and, and uh, just oil prices, this worked perfectly. Because people, they, they got more comfort. And they've realized, actually, okay, we had this democracy, basically, like hashtag kind of what we have to call it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and things were, were horrible. But then Putin came and he limited our rights, our freedoms already. Uh, but we, we actually live better. So we don't need this democracy at all. It's, it's bad for us as a nation. And this didn't happen in Ukraine. So while Russia had this little bump of like, 
hope of freedom, I would say hope of democracy, hope of fair institutions, and then regressed quite quickly back into authoritarianism. And in Ukraine, it wasn't up and down, as probably everybody knows, but you had the steady progress. I sensed this difference when, when I was in Ukraine, that yeah, people had a larger interest in, in local politics, for example, and, and in just going out and marching for, for something. That they, that they actually could bring change. The change was possible. Yeah. You saw that a Ukrainian people begin to take steps, like you're saying, getting into politics. There's more transparency. There's still a lot of things that are, are not healthy in terms of economics and politics and whatnot. But the system is cracking the old Soviet model. There's reforms uh, technology, investments, companies coming in. There's hope emerging. And I, I think that is what strikes fear into those that are abusing these power structures. The power is actually divesting to the people. So when people are starting to say, hey, I can make a difference. You know, my idea can uh, produce a new business. I can get out of this cycle of poverty. Uh, maybe I can run for government and, and I can bring my values to the table. That, in essence, is what motivates the war and the occupation is that Russia can't have a flourishing Slavic people on its doorstep. The other day we were speaking and it was you talked about arguing with folks or talking with folks about anything political. If they're watching Pervy channel, it's like you're speaking to a wall. Uh, talk to us about trying to just have a conversation about other perspectives with folks within Russia right now. Yeah, propaganda is very powerful here. So I was at work and I knew in the 24th of February I would go to the immigration office to know if I uh, have been accepted as a Russian citizen or not, if my application will be approved or not. So I am at work. I work at this international school as an English teacher. And at lunch, you know, my phone starts to go off, pop up news or whatever, you know, Ukraine is being bombed. And I was just sitting there in shock, just like, this is insane. And I look around and everybody's having their lunch, you know, just happy and nobody knows anything. And I was actually glad that I only had one more lesson after lunch and I could get out of the school because it was surreal. That I knew, okay, now, you know, I have friends in Ukraine for 10 years, right? And so I go, I go on my merry way to the immigration office while the war started. And I, I wait in line a bit. It wasn't a big, big line, luckily. And of course, you, you, I, I knew them already, you know, you see each other several times a year. And they proclaim happily that, yes, you made it, you've done it, you're a Russian citizen. I got out of the office. They didn't know anything. They didn't know. So I'm, I'm sitting there and pondering. And uh, for me, it was clear war was coming as soon as, you know, the republics were getting recognized by Russia. It wasn't completely unexpected news. I knew war will be coming. But still. I was shocked. I went uh, again into social media, and now the Russians were, were there. And what you could see on social media, everything was anti-war, right? Uh, I have made a post there too, um, and I've scrolled through the feed, and I was like, praise God that the people are not idiots. There was no like message of support for, for what was happening. For the first few days, you have a lot of opposition in Russian media. Two days. Two days. Two days. It took two days for the governmental narrative to take place. Propaganda, it was just, you know, it was going on, as usual. It was this low burn cooking thing, but nothing that would indicate that, okay, we're going to get into something big. And this, I think that's why it took two days before the people uh, got into the narrative. Gonna, we're there to defeat the Nazis. Where have you been eight years? I don't know if you know about this. You know, we're defending the independent republics of Luhansk and Donetsk from the ongoing genocide during the past eight years. And after two days, everybody on Facebook came out with, where have you been the past eight years? With, you know, uh, then of course, the Z and the V started to appear everywhere. And it's mm. Russia. I am now a member of the last oppositional party against the war. And so I have plenty of talks with, with people and you know the first time where have you been these eight years so you say no to war 
what have you been? The war was going on already. And I was saying, well, number one, I was already back in 2014 opposing the war when you sent the troops. And the second is, what have you been atheist? You believe it's a genocide, right? I believe it's a proxy war uh, by Russia, maybe. Uh, you know, at least they try to present it as a proxy war. Russians have been there. Russian tanks have been there. But it wasn't like the, the Ukrainians were killing those 14,000 people. Mm-hmm. Right? It was a war both sides were having. And that's classical Russian. You know, they instigate, create the problem, and then they come and solve the problem. You know, so we we invaded, we caused the war in the east, and now we're going to fix it. We've got to go. We have to come in and save you. Um, We want to know more practically what it's like right now inside the country. But in March, they came out with the criminal code. I'm just going to read it here. To prevent the discrediting of the special forces during their operations to protect the interests of the Russian people. I thought it was a funny play on words. We're going to prevent you from speaking against the people that are working on your interests to protect you. And so... You you technically are not allowed to share. Are they speaking about the war? Do they do they even care anymore? It does carry a sentence of 10 years if you're found guilty of speaking about the war, in their words, discrediting what's happening. Depends on the person. So if the person is interested in politics, uh, the war is very much present. And... He, the atmosphere, the atmosphere has changed, right? It is like an atmosphere of doom, basically, of gloom. Because people know it won't end well. <laughs> it will not end well. Like, yeah, the government, their narrative is up and running hot. Uh, but the simple fact that you can get into prison for 15 years for calling the war war, people subconsciously, they're not idiots. They know that they're prevented from getting to know the truth. The, uh, Did the so, people, when, when social media was shut down, you had like filtering of like Twitter and Facebook. Talk to us about the reaction. You'd think that would cause a major uproar, but it doesn't seem like it has. No, no, no. Because the Russian mindset, and this is actually something I love about it, we have so many stupid laws, you know, even before the invasion. And Russians stopped caring. <laughs> if there is a stupid law, it will be ignored. So young people, you know, me, I include myself here in the... You still think you're young? Yeah, of course. Okay. So you just get a VPN, right? (laughs) And your VPN is blocked. Okay, you get another VPN. But uh, other people, they, you know, those who took the governmental narrative serious and who believe that Instagram and Facebook are a platform for hating Russians, that's why they got blocked officially, right? They believe it. So we have close family members, uh, they're, they're not on Instagram, not on Facebook anymore, because they believe as soon as they would enter Facebook, they would receive messages, the death threats and, and yeah. speech and whatnot against them. There is a 20%, I would say, who are against the war, just unconditionally, for whatever reason. And you have 30% who are strong supporters of Putin. Those are the official numbers, not mine. And of course, you need to take those numbers with a grain of salt since you're coming from an authoritarian regime. But uh, this is also, this has been my experience, basically. That you have half of the population who are depoliticized. They don't care. So especially here in the Far East, war is far away, right? You're closer to, to the war when you're living in Portugal than when, when you're living where I live. And life goes on as usual. So mm-hmm. you had this month, two months, three months, where everybody was like, ah, what is happening? And, and trying to escape if you're a liberal. But most people, they try to ignore it. And, you know, social media is a, is a crazy thing. You can see everything on, on there. So you had this period yeah, where everybody was in politics, basically. And because it's our nation, it took a little bit longer for the people to start ignoring Right, usually you have this week or two and then the whole fad blows away. Uh, but right now, everything is back to usual, mm-hmm. right? So people uh, are going on holidays, they, they, they post their food on, on Facebook, they, they live their lives, basically. Can you talk to us about just the practical, any practical implications of the sanctions uh, from a, just a regular day in the life of a 
Far East, at least, Russian citizen? So again, it depends very much on the person. As soon as you have anything to do with outside of Russia, so if you've worked for a banking business, transport business, logistics, uh, we're in the Far East, we're very connected with, with Asia, with Japan and Korea, especially China. As soon as you've had anything to do with them, your life is impacted. But if, if you live somewhere in a village, and I mean Russian village, right? Your outhouse is still an outhouse, just a hole in the ground. You feel nothing. You survived before by planting potatoes in your yard, and you survive right now by planting potatoes in your yard. It doesn't matter for you if, if uh, you know, if you can't get a Coca-Cola anymore or if it has been more expensive. Or, if, you know, right now, Coca-Cola bottles are appearing with, um, in other languages. Uh, the, the wrapping paper is in, like, Uzbek or Azerbaijani. Because mm. parallel imports, right? No more Coca-Cola. But mm-hmm. Coca-Cola still is available. We come back to the divide between rural and urban population, between young and old. Because and I had hour-long discussions about this with uh, various people, and they say, you know, it's another part of the Russian narrative. We we are used to suffering. Like you can't bring us to our knees. Like, we we've endured harder. We don't bother about your your sanctions. Well, uh, two two generations have grown up since the end of the Soviet Union, right? Uh, you have now people, two generations of people actually, who in their entire life have not seen another president than Putin. They know nothing of of enduring the 90s, right? Right now, it's it's just right now the stocks are not depleted yet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but once the stocks are gone, and uh, what actually works way more than Western sanctions is the Chinese moving out silently. So Huawei is closing down their shops, not announcing it, but it's a Chinese way. They just do it. They don't announce it. Mm. Nobody knows. But at some point you want to get a new Huawei phone, you can. This is more impacting because the Russians, they thought that, well, the Chinese, they're our friends, they will bail us out. Well, it doesn't seem like it. And the Western products, leaving of them, it will have an effect. The longer the sanctions go on, the longer people will be out of work. And yeah, it's one thing if you can't get a Coca-Cola or if your favorite burger chain is closed now, but it's an entirely other thing once, you know, the two, three or five millions, however many will be out of jobs. The sanctions, they, they will have an impact, but not now. Interesting to see the ruble the first few weeks, three, four weeks, it shot up, it like lost half its value, but then immediately stabilized and has seems to be fine. I'm not an economist, but some, something's going on inside your country. I can explain, but it's quite easy. The real value of the ruble is now $1 at 200 170 The real value is there. The thing is, right now, an artificial deficit of foreign currencies creates. There's no more currency, basically. People are not, al- they have been not allowed at all to get access to their US dollars account or euro account. And right now, very limited. So you have a limit what people can take out of their, of their own accounts. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, the, and, and, you know, the, law, the rules allowed only to pay with rubles for gas and oil. You know, this is, is it's not created by a free market economy. It's created by a governmental. You're talking about the day in the life of a Russian citizen, the difference between rural and city. It sounds like life's normal not a lot of suffering going on like those in the West had hoped to put pressure on the population. Um, but it does take time because uh, uh, yesterday or day before an article came out from the Russian aviation institution to the peop- to the airlines to please go easy on the brakes because we have a limited supply of, of brakes for the planes. And so they're giving instructions. And you, I just thought it was interesting, a microcosm in, in the whole infrastructure of a society. But there are serious supply chain issues. And it seems like the longer this goes on, it might take years. But eventually, things are just potentially going to stop working. Yes, especially, as I said, aviation and we have such a huge nation, we are depending on aviation. And what is happening right now that, of course, uh, no Russian airlines are allowed to fly out of the nation. So all those planes are grounded 
can still use the spare parts. Uh, you know, but at some point you 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 run out of them. And another example is car manufacturing is now 97% less than before the war started. 97%. You know, of course you can say, well, right now I can buy me some some whatever, you know, Mercedes or whatnot, but you're not producing anymore. Of course, the initial effect is the, even one of kind of resistance of like, ah, those Western companies, we don't need them anyway, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we, we have our own. Everything's going to be our own. This is healthy for the Russian economy. And that gets back to this, yeah, this Russia phobia and how it can consolidate the power base to say, look, the world is against us. You know, we we need to unite. We need, we can do this. Uh, Like in Canada, Trudeau, he's like, we as Canadians, it's always, we, we can get through this. And it's like, who are you talking to? You know, I don't know who you're talking to. It's a manipulative tool, kind of drive home this we together. You lay down your autonomy for the good of the whole, and we'll get through this together. When when really all that is securing is the power structure that, that is not going to yeah. change. The good thing in Canada is, you know, Trudeau is going to go, go away at some point. You have, you have working institutions. Putin will go away when he dies. I don't yeah. know. We see the we see the same manipulative tools. Um, thinking of just like the convoy in Canada, and where people s- try to stand up, and they're just demonized and labeled, and their bank accounts are seized. These are dictatorship tools to keep people, like you said, you've got government subsidies. As long as you've got a place to live and some food, let us do the. We've got this for you. Relax. And as soon as a people, as soon as a people uh, buy that, we have only seen socialism throughout history. And you know, as a historian, it it produces systematic suffering. Better to have a king, a few dozen people beheaded unjustly, than a whole system, a whole ideology uh, that can systematically wipe out people groups like the kulaks in Russian Soviet, the peasantry, the whole a whole class of people wiped out that no one ever talks about because we don't know our history that came about through a slow labeling dismissing and the loss slowly of these freedoms. I'm wondering if we can just close, uh, if you have anything to share to Ukrainians, I know that you have a lot of friends as well as Masha and that this has been so difficult to watch from afar, from a Russian perspective. Oh, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. <laughs> um, it's a nervous laughter, not one of humor. It's very, very, very painful for me to see Ukrainians suffer, to see... The thing is, I feel very powerless, right? I, I, I've got citizenship on the 24th, and uh, about a week later I applied to get into the opposition party. I know I'm not going to change anything from within. Nobody will be able to change anything from within right now. So I'm very sorry to disappoint you um, from from our lack, our inability, with our inability, that we as, as Russians have allowed the system to develop to now to kill you. Um, it, it breaks my heart, but it makes me also insanely angry. To be honest, and um, I just uh, yeah, I don't want to ask for forgiveness right now. This is not. And and, and if any Russian comes to you and says, as, a, as Christians you should forgive, don't listen to them right now. I want to say that those twenty percent who are in the opposition of to the war, we we know we don't know your pain, but we 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 want to feel with you, and we want to say that we are with you. And again, you know, I don't want to be dramatic or anything, but for this position, yeah, you can get 15 years here. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to put it in words. But I just want to say that we are with you, and we we give our best to support you through various means. I I am not at freedom here online to talk about what we are doing practically. Um, once once I will be in Ukraine, we can talk about that, what we're doing practically to support uh, the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian nation, the Ukrainian people. But we are with you and we stand with you. Um, we pray for you. 
and and Putin will fall. It's a clear thing for us in the opposition that Ukrainians will be victorious. Thank you so much, David. I know I put you on the spot there at the end, but I think it's important for those of our friends and especially the body of Christ in Ukraine. It's very slippery slope to become filled with anger and bitterness and even hatred. And in this time of ongoing war and suffering and instability and so many people struggling right now, to know that there is one thing that unites us all, and that is the evil and the wickedness in the hearts of men to use their power for their own good, not to serve others, but to just benefit themselves and people altogether suffer. Uh, Not too many years ago, uh, even as a foreigner living in Ukraine, the oppression, the suffering, uh, the corruption was very dominant and the people suffered under different governmental systems. And it's only very, very recent that you have taken up the mantle as a people to resist that. And I would say pray. Pray for Russians as well, those inside the country, those in Belarus, our friends, that do stand against these tyrants and these ways of being, these ways of operating in the world that are not the way God intended. As they stand, pray that they will have the opportunities and the influence in the right moments with wisdom to see the same kind of freedom emerge. And if this has taught us anything, David, is that there is evil in our world and we need to be diligent to recognize where the origins of that evil lie. And the greatest evil, I think, is the denial of evil. And so for us to just look at the Putins and the Lukashenkos and the different political figures and see it all as political science, I think, is a big error. Solzhenitsyn warned us of that, warned the West, that slippery slope of just believing that there is no uh, greater war behind the physical war that we see right now. That's not to diminish the suffering in the human material things that are taking place right now, but it's to give a perspective that we can all join together and pray and hope and suffer in solidarity together that this is a, a terrible war. So, Thank you so much, David, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a great uh, idea of the different perspectives of hearing. hearing. I, I listen with great interest to all the people that you've already had and will continue to listen in. So thank you, David, for the interview and discussion. Thank you for your family, beautiful four children. This has been the Perspectives Podcast. Thank you for listening.